What we just saw in that video is a modern portrayal of what we're going to see in Luke chapter 2 today. So we turn in our Bible to Luke chapter 2 and verses 1 through 7, we're told, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor in Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him, and she was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. The Jews were under the Romans, and the, the troops were in the street, as you saw in that video. The streets would have been clogged with people. It would have looked a little bit like the evacuations with the recent hurricanes, where people are forced to leave their homes. In this case, it was because they had to travel to the far-off cities where maybe their fathers had been born. We're told here that Joseph takes Mary, and you'll remember that he's recently taken her to be his wife. Now, as we're told in verse 5, it says Mary is engaged and was with child. And the reason for this is that in the Jewish culture, there were various steps to a wedding. And as the betrothal, the engagement took place, they were considered to be husband and wife. But the marriage was not fully consummated until that event took place, the consummation of a marriage. And what we're told here is that Luke, who you remember is a medical doctor, is speaking in a very technical way when he says they were engaged, they were married, and yet Mary was still a virgin. The consummation had not yet occurred. In Matthew's gospel, he tells us clearly in Luke, uh, in Matthew 1, 24 through 25, it says, And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took Mary his, his wife, but kept her a virgin until the birth until she gave birth to a son and called his name Jesus. Now, this baby is the God-man, Jesus Christ. If you were here in the second sermon in our series, you'll remember how Michael unpacked what it meant as Luke told us in Luke 1.35. The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for this reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Jesus is fully man and fully God. And this is a mystery that, that Luke wants us to understand is still in place. This is the God-man who is taking on flesh and blood as we read this story. She's now at the end of her pregnancy. And this little family travels. And it would have been slow and painful. Uh, if you can imagine being nine months pregnant and riding on the back of a little motorcycle like that video portrayed, it was much worse for Mary because she was on the back of a donkey a beast of burden who went up and over rocky, bumpy trails, dusty trails as she traveled for over 80 miles to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem. It would have been multiple days, and when they finally arrive, they're exhausted. And as they arrive in the city, they go to the inn. There wasn't uh, any internets where you could make online reservations. Uh, Airbnb didn't exist in that day. And even if it did, everything was full. And the reason all the, the lodging is full is because there's been this decree by Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar may have been the, the Roman ruling in power at the time, but 
God was the one who was in control behind the scenes because this decree was superintended by God because he had said over 700 years earlier through the prophet Micah that the Son of God, the Savior, would be born in a town of Bethlehem. And he had to get this family from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Micah 5, 2 through 3 said, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be the ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. So they're there in this little town of Bethlehem. The town name means bread, uh, house of bread, Bethlehem, house of bread. And in John, you'll remember, Jesus Christ is called the bread of life in John 6.35. And so it's an appropriate place for the Messiah to be. Not only was it predicted, but it gives us this picture of who Christ is. Now, it's not the kind of place you would expect, is it? Bethlehem, if you know much about the geography of Jerusalem, it's five and a half miles away from Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem is the capital city. That's where the temple is. It's where the palace is. It's where the, the Roman and the Jewish seats of power were at the time. Bethlehem was just this little speed bump of a town out in the, the rural area. It wasn't anywhere you would expect the king of kings and the Lord of lords to be. It's why when you read Matthew's account and it says the Magi, the wise men were traveling. They're following the star. And as they get into the region, they didn't have our modern GPS that'll pinpoint a house for you. They get into this area following the star and they figure, oh, well, of course he's going to be in Jerusalem. So they show up at the capital. They walk into the palace. Herod, the king of the Jews at the time, the, the puppet king, is there, these these wise men who are kingmakers walk in and they say, where is the king of the Jews? And he's going, uh, here I am. And they're going, no, 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 the real one, the legitimate one. And you remember Herod is furious. He calls in uh, the, the rabbinical leaders of the day and he says, where do the scriptures say the Messiah is going to be born? And they say, oh, it's Micah 5 over in the little town of Bethlehem. So Herod tells these guys, oh, he's, he's five and a half miles away. Go and find him, worship him, and then tell me because I want to come and worship him myself. Now, as you know, Herod actually wanted to kill the Christ. He wanted to wipe out uh, the legitimate one to the throne. The Magi traveled down uh, to, Bethlehem, <coughs> excuse me, to Bethlehem to see Jesus. But as we're reading Luke's account, we don't see the, the wise men uh, mentioned right now. In fact, they are not in, in his account at all, which I'll explain to you here in a moment. But as you think about Bethlehem being this city, this little tiny town, and, and remember where Jesus has been born, he's, he's in a stable. It would have been nothing more than a cave down a dark alley on the edge of town. You're thinking, well, that's not the place for the Son of God. He should have been in the palace. Like the wise men thought as they go there, well, certainly the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords would be in this opulent uh, mansion. But the reason Christ is not there is 2 Corinthians 8, 9 tells us, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that, through, so that you through his poverty might become rich. You know, if you think of the most opulent mansion that has ever been built on planet Earth, it would be a dive compared to where Jesus Christ has just come from, wouldn't it? 
He's been in the throne room of heaven. He is the son of God. He has been in the very presence of the angels who have been worshiping him. And now God leaves his throne in heaven to come to earth. And so whether it's a cave on uh, the outskirts of town or whether it's the most opulent mansion, he's poor in comparison to what he's given up. As you think of what Jesus did for us, how he humbled himself, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 tell us this. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The eternal creator, the one who made all that is in the universe, became a part of creation as he took on the form of a man. I wish we had time to walk through and try to explain Philippians 2 and what's called the kenosis passage, this, this great theological truth of the, the humbling of God. It began as he left that throne and he came to earth. The creator becomes part of the creation. And then, as it said, he went through numerous other humiliations. He, he was a servant. He washed the disciples' feet. He ultimately went to a cross giving his life the lowest form you could, of death you could experience in that day, dying a criminal's death condemned on a cross. Jesus became poor so that we could share in his glory and his riches. This is something the prophet Simeon will point to when we get to verses 34 and 35, when, when he speaks of, of the crucifixion and how Mary will be there and her heart will be pierced as she watches the Son of God die on a cross. But what we see first is a shift to the scene of the shepherds. Luke 2, 8 through 14 tells us in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the field and keeping watch over the flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now, if you had to share the good news of the Savior coming into the world, how would you have done it? Would you call a press conference? Would you uh, hire a media firm to, to post on Facebook and Instagram? Would you uh, call and, and send the information out to WikiLeaks? I mean, how would you get the news out to the world around you? Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, R Roger, the Internet didn't exist back then. That, they couldn't have done that. Well, I know that. But would you have chosen a handful of shepherds to be the messengers to start the news that the Savior has come? What do you know about, what do you know about shepherds in that day? I mean, shepherds were guys that were isolated from society. 
These, these were people that were out on the outskirts of a town that was on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Bethlehem is this little speed bump, and it says they're in that region. They're not even in the city of Bethlehem. They're out further in, in the fields. And, and shepherds were guys that had very little human contact. Other than the people they were with in the field, they might see an occasional caravan that would come through the area. And they were pumped when a caravan would come through. Not only could they maybe replenish a few supplies, but they would get the news. They would go up and say, what's happening in the world? Caravans in that day would go from city to city and region to region, even crossing over country border lines. And they, they were purveyors of the news. They would carry news from all throughout the, the region. And, and these guys are out there having very little human contact at all. Some of that was because of the nature of their job, and some of that was because who they were. You see, shepherds were seen by many as the street people of the day. They were dirty, unkempt guys who slept out in the open field. They were ceremonially seen as unclean by the religious elite because they had to deal with dead animals and various things, and they weren't welcomed into worship in the, the synagogues and the temple. These are guys that were kind of homeless because they were nomadic and they were moving around. They were on the lowest rung of society. And yet it's a group of shepherds that God put on his guest list to be the first to know the news that the Savior of the world had come. They received the news. They're, they're told uh, he's over there in Bethlehem. And this news goes to a group that nobody would have imagined. And it may be that you're sitting here this morning, you feel a little bit like the shepherds. You're saying, you know, I'm, I'm not really that important. People don't really uh, include me in, in important affairs. People don't think of me uh, in terms of somebody that, that has much value. But I want you to think of the shepherds if you feel that way. And I want you to see how God sees you. He thought these down and outers, these outcasts of society were the ones that were most important to have the very first introduction to the Savior of the world beyond Mary and Joseph. As you think in terms of, of who God put on his guest list first, I want you to also remember why God came in the first place. Romans 5.8 tells us God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sinners, outcasts. People who are unclean, people who were in rebellion against God, people who were not welcome because you were seen as those who were outside of fellowship with God. And yet it says God gave his son, he left heaven to come to earth, to go to the cross, to die. Because Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus came and died for you and me so that we could be welcomed into his presence one day. And that's the news that the angel was sharing as he says to them in verse 11, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people, you and me included. All the people, for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I don't want you to miss those three titles there in verse 11. This is the first time these are all stacked together in Scripture. It begins by saying he is the Savior, showing he's our deliverer. He set us free from the penalty of sin, as Luke has already told us. He's called the Christ, meaning the Messiah. We've seen that as well. He is the anointed one, the promised one who would come, the one who would fulfill the prophecies, the one who was sent to save us. 
and he's called the Lord. He's God. He's taken on flesh and blood. It's been veiled in humanity, but he is still fully God. And as this amazing truth is shared, a whole army of other angels appears, and they break forth in an anthem of praise. If you can imagine both the beauty of the sound and the brightness of that light. Remember, it says when one angel showed up, when the messenger first, they were like, whoa, that's a bright light. Well, suddenly there's an entire, the word used is an army of angels. The sky opens, it's rolled back. As the truth is declared, the the Messiah has come, the, the baby has taken on flesh and blood. This is God. The whole army of angels is praising the Lord. And as this amazing truth is shared, it's not to entertain the shepherds. Rather, it's to impress upon them the truth, the gravity of, of what this is. And for them, in turn, to go and share it as well. The angel says, I bring you good news. The Greek word used is euangelizo. It's where we get our word evangelism. It means to announce the good news, to share the message of the gospel. I mentioned the shepherds were unlikely messengers to entrust the news to. But as you think about it, they were really very strategic, weren't they? Because as they were out in these regions watching their sheep, as one of these caravans would come by, and and they went up and they said, what's the news? What's happening in the world? Imagine how excited they were when the next caravan came along and they said, let me tell you something great that's happened. Let me tell you about how God has visited us, how God has arrived here on earth and why he has come to save us. And as they're sharing that good news with the caravan, that caravan would have gone on to the next city and the next and the next and into other countries and said, there are some some things happening out there by Jerusalem. And the news is being spread. These, These guys are the first evangelists of the day. They're not only able to share with their co-workers and their family when they get to see them, but they're sharing news that is being carried far and wide. And you and I today are unlikely messengers as well. Think of the places God has put you. The co-workers, the friends, the family, the classmates that you're around and how you can share the good news of the gospel as well. Now, before the shepherds can share about the Savior, they need to meet him. So verses 15 through 20 tell us, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen uh, this, they made known the statement which had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Friends, here's the first Christmas rush. And it's not to run to the malls and the stores and get caught up in in all the shopping. You're sitting here going, gosh, it's October and we're hearing a Christmas message. Uh, Maybe I better get my cards out and, and start shopping. And any of you had that thought this morning? No, put that aside. You still got time to panic in that area. Said, what we need to do is we need to ponder, as Mary did. She treasured these things in her heart. We need to stop and we need to hear the Christmas story, maybe outside of the context of December. And we need to, to think about what this truly means for us. 
These guys hear the news and they receive it by faith. And then they go and they see and they receive the Lord and they begin to worship and share the good news with everybody else. These are the first evangelists. And you and I today get to follow in their footsteps. We have been called to be messengers of the good news of the gospel, the message of grace, that Emmanuel, God with us, has happened, that the Savior has come. Now, maybe some of you were reading ahead in the passage because you're wondering where the, the wise men show up as, that I mentioned earlier, but the wise men are not mentioned in Luke's account. We talked earlier in this series about how the different gospels were written to different audiences, and, and the magi, the wise men, are mentioned in Matthew's gospel. And if you look at Matthew's gospel, it says in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 11, Now after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and they worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You see, when they show up, Jesus is not in the stable anymore. The Magi show up many months later. Now, don't worry, when I put up my, my manger scene, I put the, the Magi right there too. But the scriptures tell us they were not there at the stable. They came sometime, many months, some say maybe even a year after the birth of Jesus. Jesus is born in a stable. The events that are taking place, uh, the Magi don't show up till many months later. And Luke is about to tell us what happens next, but let me just focus on the Magi for a moment. They were the special kingmakers. They showed up. There was a purpose for them coming, not only in declaring Jesus was who he was, but it was also to present to him gifts, gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These were special gifts that had symbolic meaning, gold, royalty as the king. Gifts of frankincense and myrrh pointing to the, the future crucifixion, the embalming spices that would be used for him, but they were also of great value. And as God had the Magi come, it not only affirmed who he was, but it provided the resources the family would need for what would happen. As you read Matthew's gospel, it tells us that shortly thereafter, an angel appears to Joseph and he says, take the child and Mary and go to Egypt. Because Herod was coming along to try to wipe out the Holy Family. He wanted to get rid of Messiah Jesus. And he said, that's why the, you read the scriptures, and it says that the children two years and under, when the Magi show up and they say, where's the king of the Jews? He's saying, what are you talking about? When did this star appear? And as they tell him all this information, Herod, the puppet king to wipe out the promised Messiah, the real king of the Jews, is going to go and kill all the babies two and under in the region. And God warns Joseph to take Jesus and go to Egypt, which is also a fulfillment of another prophecy that says, out of Egypt I've called my son. And in order to travel, they needed money. They needed money for travel and, and a place to stay and provisions while they were there. And they were a very poor family. And, and if they had given, those gifts were sold to be used to sustain the family while they were in Egypt. Now, I tell you, they're a very poor family, and we see that in what Luke shares next. Because as you look at Luke 2.21, it says, When eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. If you were here last week, you'll remember we talked about what circumcision was. It was a sign of the covenant. 
It was a sign given by God to Abraham, and it said that the Jews are the chosen people, and every male was to be circumcised at eight days. And here we see Jesus, who said later in life, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The law, as it was prescribed, was being fulfilled by Mary and Joseph. They were godly Israelites. Joseph, as the leader in the family, said, we are going to do what the law prescribed. So at eight days, he circumcised. That probably happened there in Bethlehem. But the very next thing that happens in the passage is that another part of the law will be prescribed. But as Jesus is is circumcised, they say his name is Jesus. It means Yahweh is salvation. It points to who he was. Matthew one twenty one says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. And then in verses 20 through, 22 through 24, we read this. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Holy means literally set apart, dedicated. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now the first thing that we see happening comes from Exodus chapter 12. I'm sorry, Exodus 13. Every firstborn male that opened the womb was, was belonged to God. And you could redeem that uh, firstborn through the pain of a ransom price of five shekels. Now, Luke doesn't tell us that there was a payment made. This family not only was poor and didn't have the money, the gold wasn't given until months later when the Magi show up. But beyond that, it's because Jesus was not being redeemed back. He was rather being dedicated and set apart to serve as God's uh, anointed one, the Messiah. It's, it's like what you see in 1 Samuel chapter 1, where Hannah brings the baby Samuel, and he dedica- he's dedicated over to the Lord, and he spends his life serving God. He was not redeemed out. He was given over. So we, we see the law being uh, mentioned here in Exodus 13, And he was not redeemed out, rather he came to be the redeemer. The other sacrifice comes from Leviticus chapter 12. There it said, the mother of a male child was unclean for seven days after his birth. The circumcision happened, remember, on the eighth day. Now after these two events passed, 33 days were to pass before she was to make a burnt offering of a lamb and a sin offering of a turtle dove. Now we read here that there was a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons given. And that's the provision in the Levitical law found in Leviticus 12.8 that says if a family is too poor to afford a lamb, then they can instead give two birds in place. One bird for the burnt offering and a second bird for a sin offering. Now what this tells us is just how poor this family is. We've already talked about how humbling it was for God to leave his throne in heaven and come to earth. And and God didn't choose a billionaire family of the day for his son to be with. He chose a family in the poverty level of society. These were the poorest of the poor people. And the sacrifice not only shows how humble a state God's son was born into, but it also makes clear that Mary is not the co-redeemer with Christ. There's a small segment that that see Mary as the co-redemptrix, saying she had a part in our salvation in terms of actually being uh, one who helped redeem us. Now, Mary is very special. We saw that in Luke chapter 1. Elizabeth said, blessed are you among women. She is the mother of the Lord. She has a place of great honor, but she does not have a place as your redeemer or mine. 
In fact, the Bible is very clear in 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. It says, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus is the redeemer. Mary needed a redeemer as well. It says here she had to offer a sin offering. She was a sinner just as you and I are today. The Bible's clear we're all sinners. Romans 3.10 says there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 tells us for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Mary needed a redeemer just as you and I do today, and Jesus was the redeemer. She could not afford to buy a lamb, but the lamb of God came to buy her redemption to buy your redemption, to buy mine. Do you remember what we saw last week in Luke 168? We talked about that Greek word lutrosin, how we have been redeemed, bought, set free, the ransom, the penalty price has been paid. It's what Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. John 1.29, the one who came before, remember John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Messiah to point and say, here he is. And in John 1.29, John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ was the long-awaited and promised one. And as we come to verses 25 through 38, we find two other people who were on God's guest list. Two other people who wanted us to know this is who he is and who God gave very special invitations to and made sure they knew the Messiah had come. Now, we're not able to go into these verses in depth and look at these two people, uh, but we are going to come back to them on Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday this year, and we're going to come back to this part of the passage, and we're going to look at these two in depth, but today what I want to do is just kind of water ski over these verses. All right, we'll scuba dive when we get to Christmas Eve And we'll look at Anna and Simeon in more depth. But right now what we see is one of these two is a widow by the name of Anna. It says she's a prophetess. And that means God reveals things to her and through her. And and as we talk about uh, this lady on Christmas Eve, what we're going to see is she's, she's very old. And when I say very old, at a minimum, she's in her 80s. And a case can be made from the way the text reads that she's actually over 100 years old. So at a minimum, she's in her 80s, probably well past the century mark. And as we look at this woman who's in her 80s, we see that she's taking the strength she has and she's still serving God with what she can do. Some of you this morning may find yourself struggling physically, not just because of age, maybe it's an illness or some other hindrance in your life. And what I want you to see is that you can have a wonderful ministry even if you're physically incapacitated because verse 37 tells us the ministry that Anna had, her primary ministry was that of prayer. She was a woman who prayed. And there is nothing that we do as a church that can be done without the support of prayer. Prayer is, is the unseen powerhouse that runs the ministry of Wayside Chapel. Prayer is what allows you and I as individuals when we are out as messengers of the gospel to do what we do. We need to be those men and women, boys and girls who are down on our knees, who who are sharing uh, the needs with God. The Bible tells us the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. And what does it tell us to do? It says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. You can run around and recruit people, but what God says is you need, you need to be like a farmer who prays and says amen with a hoe. There's a double part. 
We need to be those who are, who are prayerful people. And Anna was one of those. The other person mentioned is found in verse 25. It says, And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. The name Simeon literally means hears and obeys. And in verse 26, we see something that Simeon has heard from God. It says, And it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. I want you to imagine for a moment what it would be like to have a promise like that. You will not die until you physically see the Lord. Would you wake up every morning wondering, is today the day? Is today the day that I get to see Jesus? Simeon was a guy who did that. How many times do you wake up in the morning and say, is this the day that I get to meet Jesus? You ever do that? You know, the Bible tells us there's a day coming where we're all going to meet the Lord. It's either going to happen through the rapture, when Christ comes back for us at a time that nobody knows, and and Jesus says in the end of Revelation, behold, I'm coming quickly. Or it's going to happen when we die. And there's a day coming when we are all going to die. And for the believer, 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. At the moment a believer passes away on this earth, he passes or she passes right into the presence of God and sees him. And for the unbeliever, there is a day where every non-Christian, non-believer will see the Lord face to face as well. But that's going to be at the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20. And that's a time of, of judgment where all those who have rejected Jesus will be rejected and sent to the lake of fire, a place of eternal separation from God. And so for us, we should look forward to each and every day and say, God, this is the day you've made. You've given it to us. Would you use me? Would you make me your your suit of clothes? Put me on and walk around in me. Make me your mouthpiece. Let me be your messenger. God, is this the day you're coming back? Do you have that expectation? Simeon did. And as he thought, could this be the day that I'll see the Lord? It, It wasn't one of fear, but it was one of excitement. He's described here as being devout and righteous. But we see he wasn't counting on how good he was to get to God. And none of us should either because we're all sinners. There's none righteous, no, not one, remember? But as Simeon was looking forward to seeing God, he knew it would come through the provision of God's Messiah, which is why it says he was looking for the consolation of Israel. The word consolation means to provide comfort to one who has suffered loss. To provide comfort to one who has suffered loss. And as you think about what it means for us, it it means Jesus would bring comfort by bringing redemption so that when we lose our lives, we are not lost, but we are with him in heaven. It is the picture of our redemption. And Simeon knew through the coming of Christ, not only would the nation of Israel be set free, but he as an individual would be saved as well, which is why Luke 2, 28 through 32 says this. Then he took him into his arms, and he blessed God, and he said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the, and, and the glory of your people, Israel. When, when he says that now he can depart in peace, And as he's speaking this prophecy to all the nations and the Gentiles, I want you to remember what we've seen about the temple before. 
Remember, there's an outer courtyard called uh, the Court of the Gentiles, Solomon's Portico. It was the house of prayer. So the temple is this, this massive mount area. And, and there's this outer area where the Gentiles could come. And then there was that dividing wall, remember, called the balustrade. And, and no Gentile could pass beyond that wall. It was a, a wall of division. And if you were a woman, you could come into a, a Jewish woman or a Jewish man. You could come beyond that wall and you would come into the first courtyard, which was called the court of women. Now, we know that they have gone no further than the court of women at best because Anna is there and Mary is there. A Jewish woman could not go into the next courtyard, which was called the court of the Israelites or men. And then beyond that, remember, there was another dividing wall where the, the brazen altar where sacrifices were offered. And only priests could be beyond that. And do you remember where Zacharias was that we saw in Luke chapter 1? He went into the inner temple. He was in front of the veil that separated the holy of holies. There was this sign of separation for everybody in that day. Everybody was separated from God because of their sins. And there's Simeon. Based upon the fact he's revealing this prophecy to the Gentiles, I believe he's out in the outermost courtyard, the court of the Gentiles. And it, it would have been like being in Hemisphere Plaza on New Year's Eve. Has anybody here ever done that? You're probably not going to raise your hand and admit it. But if you've ever been out there, you know there's this, this crush of crowds. And, and you're in the crowd and you're moving along. And remember, you have, you have Mary and Joseph. They're, they're teenagers at best. They have this brand new newborn baby, 40 days old. And, and they, they've got the baby and they're, they're kind of working their way through the crowd. And, and they have the sacrifices. So Joseph is carrying this little cage with the two birds in it. And, and they're about to go into the next courtyard. And suddenly this old man comes walking up to you. And he says, let me hold your baby. Any moms here ever had that experience? Let me hold your baby. And you're like, I don't know you. Get away. <laughs> well, here's this old shaky guy. Give me your kid. And, and he takes the baby and you're going, oh, don't drop him. And, and, and he's holding the baby. What a mind-blowing moment that must have been for Simeon. This guy who is a, a prophet, who, who knows the scriptures, who knows how the Bible says that God holds us in the palm of his hand. And, and, and here he's holding God himself in his very palm. The one who holds us in the palm of his hands, he's holding. And, and he's going, this is, this is the God man. This is God taking on flesh and blood. And as he holds this little baby, he's been, he's been waiting in faith for him. And now he receives him literally into his arms and he holds him. And he begins sharing this, this praise. And he's, he's shouting it for the crowds all around to hear. This, this is the redemption of Israel. And not just for the Jews, you who are passing through to the inner temple, but for you, the Gentiles. This is the baby. And there's Mary and Joseph. They've seen angels. They've heard Elizabeth. They've had all these things. And it says, she, you know, she, she just had shepherds show up. And she's pondering. She's treasuring all this in her heart. And, and now here's this, this, this aged prophet saying, here he is. And as he's sharing this news, he says, now I can depart in peace. The word for depart describes death in, in, in a way that's very vivid for us on earth. You see, this word is found throughout the scriptures uh, to describe various things. In one case, it means, the word literally means to release from. And it was used of going to an animal and untying it from its burden and releasing it. 
It, it was used of a, a soldier who would fold up his tent and he would, he would pack it up and he would move to a new location. It was used of a, a sailor who would untie a ship from its moorings so it wasn't tethered to the dock, banging against it with the waves, but it could now set sail and move out into the open ocean. It's a wonderful picture for us of death, isn't it? For the believer, it means we've been released from the burdens of this life. We, we've been set free. We're, we're no longer held to, to the, this earthly body. You, you heard that we lost little Sadie Marada. She would have been 13 years old here. I remember the first time I, I went to the hospital when she was around six, and, and I prayed with this little girl and her mother before her first cancer surgery. And, and to, to watch her move through six and a half years of struggle. The family has, has moved on to Virginia, but we've continued to love and pray for them. Her grandparents and cousins and, and others are here in our church. She's been released. We're sad we've lost her, but friends, she's had her promotion. She's been released from the burdens of this world. You and I one day are going to be set free from this world as well, from the burdens to the blessings of eternity. It's why Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. There's our word. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. When we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We are released from this world, and we go on to the blessings of eternity. And as Simeon receives and he holds the Messiah in his arms, in that mind-blowing moment, as he, as he holds the, the Savior of the world, he, he breaks forth into praise, but then he also speaks a prophecy, a heart-wrenching prophecy uh, that you see there in verses 34 through 35. He says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even to your own soul. To the, to, he's speaking to Mary, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. He looks at this mother in this moment where she's holding a a barely more than month old baby. And he says, Mary, there is a day coming where he will die. As you read John chapter 19 and verses 25 and following, you see that prophecy fulfilled as Mary is standing there at the foot of the cross and she looks up and she sees her son, Jesus, the promised Messiah, the God-man hanging on a cross, dying to pay the penalty of sin. This is the story of Christmas. It's why the baby came at Bethlehem so he could ultimately become the Christ of Calvary. And it's the story we remember today as we come to the communion table. Because as we come to the communion table, what this is telling us and what we are celebrating today is what God did for us when he sent his son, Jesus Christ. The reason that Jesus Christ came so that he could ultimately go to the cross to be the payment for our sins. And it may be that you're here this morning and you've never come to a full understanding of who Jesus really is or why he came. 
Maybe you're somebody who's been trusting in yourself and how good you are and how many times you go to church. Friends, we just read how Simeon was devout and righteous. And he's a guy that said, I know I need the Savior. And all of us here this morning are sinners. All of us here are separated from God by our sins. We owe a penalty. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so he came. He came to die for us. He came and put our names on a guest list. When you read John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world, put your name there, for God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, put your name there again, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And the question this morning is, have you ever accepted his great gift to you of grace? Have you ever asked Jesus to be your savior, saying, I recognize who you are. You are the promised one. You are the one who came and took my place. You died for me. And the Bible tells us in John 1, 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God, to those who believe in his name. If you accept Christ as your savior, your name is written in the book of life. The RSVP is confirmed. You will be with God when you pass from this earth into his presence. And so if you're here this morning, you've never received him as your savior. I invite you in a moment, if you're ready to turn to him and, and, and accept him as your savior, to take the bread, the bread of life, as John chapter 6 told us. The one who was born in the house of bread to be our savior. Take the bread and say to God, I'm accepting your son like Simeon. Hold it in your hands and say, thank you for the Messiah. Thank you for meeting my need and paying my penalty. Take the cup representing his blood and hold it. And remember what it means. It's the blood of the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. And the Bible says, if you receive him as your savior, you will be received into the family. For the rest of us who have already accepted Christ, use this time to thank God for his great gift to you. Use it to confess any sins you may have so that you can come to the communion table with clean hands and hearts. Will you service the elements, please? Hold them and we'll take them all together in just a moment. At the Last Supper, as Jesus was gathered with his disciples, he took bread and he broke it. And as he passed it among them, he said, This is my body which is broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. The bread of life which was broken for us. Eat it in remembrance of Jesus. In Hebrews, we're told that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Mary and Joseph couldn't even afford a lamb. And yet God gave the Lamb of God. The one who would be given for you and I. The one whose blood would not be like the other sacrifices. It was only a temporary covering. It would wash away our sins once and for all. It's why John could say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The blood of Jesus, drink it in remembrance of him. Would you join me in prayer, please? Lord God, thank you for your gift. Thank you for your son, Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to leave your throne in heaven, to humble yourself and come taking human form, to put on flesh and blood and go through all the 
the humiliations and limitations of this world to be a baby who had to be diapered, wrapped in cloths as we just read and laid in a manger and then to ultimately hang on a cross giving your life for us paying a penalty you did not owe but that we could not pay so thank you Jesus for your elaborate and extravagant love to set us free from our sins and Lord God we thank you not just for the gift but for the entrustment of being your people who have been tasked to be messengers to go into the world and share the good news to let everybody know as the shepherds did that the Messiah has come be like Anna and Simeon to proclaim to people around us the Messiah is here Lord would you use us as your messengers of grace send us out now we pray in the name of our precious Savior Jesus Christ